then a note about the um, after our morning service here. There is a college and career, those who are post high school um, at the Webster's, John and Katie. And so we can invite you all to that, but don't go right away. We need a little time, so just hang out and have coffee and fellowship with us here. And I'll let them uh, get ready for you at their house, and we're thankful that um, they're hosting that today. It's uh, nice to have the instruments here and to have another dimension of our, of our worship, our music. I want to give you a title, and as soon as I give you the title, you're going to think of something. All right? So I'm going to give you the title and what comes to your mind when you hear Comfort and Joy. The Christmas song. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. All right. I looked at this text over and over again, and these are the best two words, uh, but it's not a Christmas message. All right. So it's from 2 Corinthians 7, but God's comfort and joy uh, in ministry is what Paul is, is striving uh, for us to learn. And, uh, and um, we'll look at it in 2 Corinthians uh, 7. We read 2 to 9, and we're going to include uh, 10 through 16 as well. We saw last week, the end of last week, that holiness was expected uh, in the context of local church, relationship, discipleship. Go back with me to 2 Corinthians 6 and look at verse 11 to 13 of 2 Corinthians 6. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. And then our text starts this morning with verse 2 of chapter 7. Make room in your hearts for us. In, in your hearts is not in the original. You probably see that in your footnote. Um, but it is in the context. It is um, additions to help make the... Uh, the context and the text makes sense to us uh, readers. Um, so make room for us. And he's talking about affection, affection and ministry. When you are serving under uh, leadership that you're not sure if they love you or not, it's hard to serve in a church. Uh, when I came, 12, almost 12 years ago now, it was obvious that this church loved each other, uh, so much so that they were quite candid and uh, um, a lot of fun uh, to get together and hear of the jokes and the inside jokes and the, uh, the way that you expect in a family that's close-knit. And as uh, probably half of you have come after I have been here, and hopefully you could say the same thing, that this is a family, hopefully not too close-knit, that you're not welcome or included. But the Corinthians probably struggled uh, with uh, some cultures in our, in our world are very private, private people, hard to get to know. Um, only a few people can get into the inner circle, and that's guarded um, with, um, and it takes years and years and years for this to happen. Well, Paul spent a lot of time with the Corinthians and for them to accept what he has given them, already one letter, a second letter that was hard for Paul to write that we'll see today, and then 2 Corinthians, these, this church has at least three letters written to them 
And so they hold a dear place in Paul and Timothy and his companions' um, hearts. And so he's asking the Corinthians to make room uh, in your hearts for us. And he's going to say why here in the first uh, verse, verse 2. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Now, if you distrust leadership for a good reason, and there are leaders in, in churches that give congregations a reason not to trust them. They do unethical things. They spend unethical, uh, they have unethical practices, and uh, it is hard to trust and understand where they're going. They're not very transparent, um, but I don't think that's the case with Paul. And from what I can tell from the other elders at our church, um, they have been here 40 years, more than 30 years. I've been here 12 years and Pastor Ty's past two years. So we have close to over 80, 85 years of uh, history with our church here. And uh, you have gotten to know, uh, you've gotten to know us. So if we were to write this letter to you as our church, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. I could say this isn't Paul just gloating or being proud. This is just saying, we've given you no reason to not trust us, for you not to open your hearts wide to us, where you can be transparent in ministry with us. And hopefully that's the case here with our, with our leadership here, with our elders, that we've given you no reason not to make room in your hearts for us. And when you are ministering to someone who is too private to let you minister to them, it is very difficult. It's frustrating, to be honest. Um, when we find out things uh, through the grapevine and, um, and we want to be there as, as elders to comfort and, and, to, and to walk alongside. So I'm going to make this personal from the beginning here that you always have to, as a congregation, evaluate your leadership. But if your leadership is trustworthy and falls into this category of verse 2, these categories, and you say, really, they haven't wronged us, they haven't taken advantage of us, then your responsibility as a congregation is to open your heart wide. Like, allow the, the leadership to minister in your life. And when that happens, the leadership is going to have a lot of comfort and joy. And you'll see the congregation in the Corinthians is going to have comfort and joy as well. There's a mutual relationship that is growing from the Corinthians where there was Paul in the first letter condemning a lot of what they were doing, a lot of selfish, immature behavior that needed a lot of correction in the first book. And now he's coming alongside them and saying, hey, I'm ministering, to, I have ministered to you, I want to minister with you, alongside you, but we need to work together, and uh, our hearts have been wide open to you. We've spoken freely to you, so uh, open your, make room in your hearts uh, for us, and look at our lives. Look at how we've uh, done ministry, and we haven't um, given you any reason not to trust us or follow our leadership. Verse 3 of chapter 7, I do not say this to condemn you, like that you guys are bad because you haven't opened your hearts. No, that's part of their culture probably, to, and to watch someone's life for a while before you just open your heart to everybody. Be gullible. For I said before that you are uh, in our hearts. 
to die together and to live together. This may be some persecution here that the Corinthians are going to face uh, in dying for Christ, but also if they're not dying uh, in persecution, to live together. And Paul uh, wants to uh, spend time with them. What he's saying is here, we're on the same path. We're living for the same God. And uh, whether we die or whether we live, we're going to do it together. Verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. Now, the more you know someone, the more bold you can be. Uh, I'm not as bold with the first time I meet someone. Now, some of you are, and that's your personality, but most of us aren't. It takes us time to get to know someone before we're really bold to say, oh, what you're wearing is awful. Who picked that out? Or, or just your hair looks awful. Did you get a haircut? Okay, you need to go back and get that fixed or whatever. You, you wouldn't say that to someone unless you were, had a closer, well, you shouldn't say that to someone unless you had a close relationship with them. So it is with ministry. The confrontation that Paul has, uh, that uh, he has written to them, uh, has required him to be greatly, uh, have great boldness. And he says, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm proud of you. They have grown as believers. They are following uh, Christ. Verse uh, 4 continues, I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Now, the Corinthians know the hardships that Paul has gone through uh, to share the gospel with them and other places around the Roman Empire. And when they hear great boldness, they would say, oh, of course he's being greatly bold. <laughs> he's the Apostle Paul, right? He's a bold guy. Well, he also continues and says, I have great pride in you. He probably shares the Corinthian story, like 1 Corinthians 6, that says, if, if God can save the Corinthians that were in homosexual relationships and immorality and and uh, greed, and stealing, and all kinds of things that the Corinthians were involved in in 1 Corinthians 6, and they were washed, and they were sanctified, and now they're part of the body of Christ, and God is using these people who were once destructive in their relationships, he's using them now to, as ambassadors, showing people the glory of God. And so it should be with us. We all have a past. We all have sin that we don't want to be remembered for. We want to have a separation between us and our sins. Things that we, as Romans 6 says, we're ashamed of. And yet we are slaves of righteousness now. And if you are a slave of righteousness and living as an ambassador and enjoying the glory of the Lord and living for the pleasure of your God, then you're going to cause your ministry leaders to be filled with comfort when they think of you. And even if your ministry leaders have affliction like Paul has, and if Christianity becomes more and more unpopular in our culture, ministry leaders are going to face more and more threats and other, other uh, types of affliction. And Paul says here, in all of our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. And what causes him to have great comfort here and joy? Well, he's going to tell us a little bit of uh, what caused him to have comfort and joy. Verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, that was people like the Jewish people, there were uh, people in Philippi that um, 
idol worshipers that wanted uh, Paul and Silas thrown in prison, and they were, and they are afflicted on every turn, fighting without and fear within. Fear, how does a ministry, what does a ministry leader fear? A couple things that I fear. One, that I'll get God's word wrong. That I'll stand up and I'll tell you things that are heretical. Or we'll practice something that is very confusing and not according to scripture. So what we're doing here in our practice is trying to stay as close to what we see in scripture as possible. Because as a, as a, as a ministry leader, I fear standing before God and, says, and God says to me, what in, on earth were you doing, Fry? Like, where did you get those crazy ideas for ministry? Um, you led the church on, on rabbit trails, all, all these different directions, and I, I'm not pleased. You're a wicked and slothful servant. I don't want to hear that. So that's the fear that I have within. Other fears that I have that I'll give you the truth, and you won't want it. So I'll give you what God says, and you come and you sleep. Or you come and you are thinking about lunch, the Patriots, the World Cup's coming next month. And then there's all kinds of things. Christmas is only how many days away? Okay, you can be thinking about anything else but the truth of God. And I fear that as I give you the word or Sunday school teachers gave you the word that you don't want it. You're already full. You just can't handle anything, anything more. You have too much information. So let me encourage you. Come hungry. Come hungry to learn the word. If we spend as much time in the word as possible and you leave thinking, eh, I don't know what that was about. And every week I come and I don't know what that's about. But I've talked to a few of you and you are hungry for the word. You come here expecting not a five-minute feel-good message. Here it come, like last week, you came and you heard 54 minutes of preaching. And I don't feel bad about giving you 54 minutes of preaching because I had your attention. And it seemed like, from what I could observe, you wanted the word. Okay? But we fear in ministry that we'll give the word, and you fear that in ministry too. That you're going to get the gospel wrong when you share the gospel as an ambassador, or when you get the gospel right, people don't want to hear it. Okay, you have the same fears in when you're trying to minister as well. So that's the fear within. Of course, fighting without, we can't control that. All we can do is encourage each other in the fight without and help each other to pray and keep our eyes fixed on Christ as we deal with the fear within. Verse 6. Now, this is on the heels of our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn. And he doesn't spend long there, but he says, but God, who comforts the downcast. That's the word lowly. And if you watch someone walk into church today and their head is down, and there's no light in their countenance, they're discouraged about something. And we can come alongside that person and comfort them. I think the word comfort here is the word that we get the comforter back in John 14 is someone who comes alongside to help. So I have pictures on my screen of comfort. 
These comfort are by siblings or friends, peers, that there's obviously there's someone in the picture that needs comfort, and then there's someone who's doing the comforting. And that's a lot of ministry. That's a lot of parenting. That's a lot of grandparenting. Is a, people need comfort. Why? Because there's affliction everywhere. Life is hard. And when it comes to the Corinthian church living in a very pagan culture, life, when they turned to, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, life probably got harder. And I have warned people they get baptized, as we saw this morning. Life gets harder after baptism. Because you're making a statement and you're taking a stand for Christ. And Satan does not like it. The world doesn't like it. And they're going to ramp up their attacks on you. And there have been several that have been baptized in this baptistry. And I think they have walked away from the Lord. It's best I know where they're at. I hope they haven't. But several in, in my 12 years here have. So God, though, comforts the downcast. Comforted, verse 6 continues, comforted us. So God is comforting the downcast. We know he comforts the downcast. So when we're afflicted and we are lowly, we are having a hard time in life. Things are discouraging. The fear within is pretty strong. The fighting without is pretty dominant. Dis disappointing. God comforts the downcast. And we are comforted. He, God comforts us by the coming of Titus. Titus is probably the man who is the recipient of the book, Titus. But comfort and joy comes from godly character. We've seen that in verses 2 through 5. That even though you may have physical affliction and um, your character, which is clearly defined there in verse 2, that other people can see and say, you are right, Paul. You are right that you've wronged no one and have corrupted no one and taken advantage of no one. So comfort and joy from a leadership perspective is an analysis. Have I done anything for these people not to want to follow me? And if the answer is, I can't think of anything. And if I have given them, if I've sinned against them, I have confessed that and forsaken it. And they've given me forgiveness. So godly character is where comfort and joy comes from as you minister um, in, uh, for the, as an ambassador uh, for the cause of Christ. Second, verse 6 starts, uh, but God. And this comes from God using other people. So there's one phrase of God comforts the downcast, and it's almost like we're going to say, well, how does God comfort the downcast? Here's how he does it. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, you may have come today downcast, and you didn't look like this. <laughs> you look like this. But inside, things aren't right. You know things aren't right. So what do you need to do? Open your heart wide to someone in minute, who, who can come alongside you and, and comfort you because those people have been comforted. And comfort is how Paul starts this book back in chapter 1. With the comfort that we have from God, we use that comfort to comfort other people. So comfort and joy comes from God using other people in our lives, and specifically 
other Christians. And here it's Christians who are leaders, who have a godly character, someone like Titus. And verse 7 continues, and not only by his uh, coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. So Titus is sent to Corinth when Paul is not there. Titus comes with news, and we have heard about Titus in uh, chapter 2, I believe, about the letter that Paul writes that was difficult for Paul to write, and we'll, we'll see it again here. Um, and so Titus goes and ministers in between missionary journeys, and Titus comes to Paul and meets him partway on his, I believe, his second, maybe third missionary journey, and gives him a report of what's going on in Corinth. And what is going on in Corinth? Well, Titus even coming is an encouragement to Paul. But he says, it's not just his coming, but also when I heard how you treated Titus, I was comforted. And how you viewed us, that you are your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. That's probably Paul here. So that I rejoice still the more. So in Paul's absence, hearing from other people that, Paul, we are longing to see you. We're mourning over our sin. Our sin and we have a zeal for being ambassadors for Christ. So what does this do for Paul? He rejoices still more. This is why joy is part of the title. Joy is throughout this passage, and comfort is throughout this passage. Where does comfort and joy come from? It comes from godly character, and then it comes from other people. So Titus causes Paul comfort, and then the news that Titus brings causes Paul comfort. So how can you, how can you and I be a comfort to those that we are following in ministry? Well, do we long to see them? Do we mourn over our sin that they've revealed in our lives? Are we zealous to, um, to spend time with them? That's the idea that the Corinthians had. That's the heart, the attitude that the Corinthians had toward Paul when he wasn't there. And Titus revealed that when he came. So God uses other people to bring comfort. Verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, and this is probably the letter of chapter 2, verse 4, the hard letter, and it sounds like it's different than 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians had multiple different um, sins and issues that the Corinthians had to deal with. But the grieving letter or the difficult letter, the tearful letter it's called, probably had one issue, and that's what we, that's what we get here as well. There's probably uh, that middle letter between First and Second Corinthians that Paul writes this difficult or tearful letter, and uh, that possibly is what Titus delivered or Titus observed their reaction uh, to this letter. And he saw them react. And this is how they reacted, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Like, Paul, that sounds a little harsh. I made someone sad and I don't feel bad about it? Like, whoa, in a culture where everybody's supposed to be happy and the leaders are supposed to make you happy, and if the leaders don't make you happy, the leaders are bad. No. Your parents are there to make you happy, and your parents don't make you happy, and the parents are your bad guys. No. So what's the, what's the goal here of ministry is to make 
bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We see that in verse 1. Leaders who are godly are helping you to be godly, Christ-like, ambassadors, only doing what pleases God, which we see in chapter 5. So Paul writes a letter about something specific that he knew was going to be a, a heavy, weighty letter that was going to confront them, rebuke them, and is causing them to grieve. And he says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, because every time you minister to someone, you tell them hard things, you're like, oh, was I too hard on them? And as a parent, you think that, was I too hard on my rebellious son or daughter? Uh, and you, you wrestle with that. As a, as a ministry leader. Sometimes we are, and sometimes you come to this conclusion, I didn't have no wrong. I did actually what's right. This is the godly response to their sin and their rebellion. This was a, a proper response to that. And it's causing them to grieve. And Paul says, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while, and grief, proper grief is only for a while. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice. Again, the theme of rejoicing comes back. Not because you were grieved. Now, Paul's not there. Oh, I'm so glad I made those Corinthians mad. <laughs> so glad they're so sad and they're crying over their sin. Wow, what a great apostle I am. Okay, he's not rejoicing. That's, that's a little weird, all right? And we, we grieve with those who are grieving. But he says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Rejoicing at what the grief caused. The grief caused you to turn from your sin and ask God to forgive you, and you were cleansed from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9 says. And that's the direction that Paul, this letter put these Corinthians on. A path that started with grief that led to repenting and freedom from sin. So that's the reason Paul is rejoicing. And verse 9 finishes, For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And there, the world grieves. The world has their hands in their head often with the afflictions that they have without and fighting fear within. And the comfort that we give them is not too much different than the comfort we give to believers. But comfort and joy in ministry comes from God using grief over sin. If I tell you you are sinning, and that's the reason you struggle in your marriage, in your parenting, in your workplace, in your relationships, in your neighborhood, in yourself, by yourself. That's why you struggle with private sin, is that you are, you're sinning against God. You are not, look at verse 1 again, you are not cleansing yourself from every defilement of body and spirit. You are not concerned about bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You're suppressing the fear of God. You're suppressing the truth of God. You're suppressing and keeping other people, Christians who would reach into your life, ask you to open your heart wide, and, and, they, they, and you don't want them to see what's in your heart. 
because fear and anxiety is dominating your life when you're free from fear and anxiety. And you don't have to be fearing and anxious because sin's power is broken. And we'll see that in the book of Romans. And godly people will come and they may have to write you a letter. They may send you a difficult text. They may sit you down across from coffee and, and confront you and say, the reason your life is so discontent and angry and fearful and worried and you're a mess emotionally is because of your sin. And you may not like that friend, that spouse, that parent, that child of yours who confronts you. But grief over sin leads to turning from that sin. That's what godly grief does. I agree with God's word. I agree in the fear of God that I am not being holy. My body or my spirit is defiled. And I'm not being like Christ. I'm not a very useful ambassador for Christ. I'm not living to please God. I'm, I, in my affliction, uh, I don't see God's grace here. Uh, back in chapter 4, and I don't even, I doubt even that I'm a, an actual believer, follower of Christ. And you have a lot of doubts, a lot of fears, and someone, a godly minister, will confront you in your sin. He finishes verse 9, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Godly grief doesn't end with loss. It ends in a productive way. Now, let's look at verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So if, I, if you tell me that I'm in sin, and I grieve that you tell me that I'm in sin, and then eventually, when I'm thinking, I agree with you that I was in sin, and that I need to confess my sin, and ask God to forgive me of, cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and he does. I enjoy my salvation again. Now, would I regret that you talked to me if I responded that way? No, eventually I'd say, thank you so much for talking to me and causing me to grieve for a while. While I was in sin, justifying sin, not allowing anyone close to me so they wouldn't expose me as a sinner. No. So whenever someone, a believer, that we're confronting in their sin, it leads to their salvation. Now think about it evangelistically if we're ambassadors. Does godly grief produce repentance that leads to the salvation of someone's soul at the beginning of their spiritual journey? Yes, this is how it works as well. People live sinful lives. We're born in sin. We invent sin. And until we realize that sin's dragging us to an eternal lake of fire, sin's no big deal. But as soon as you realize your sin is dragging you to death and hell for all eternity, ooh, now I'm going to start grieving over my sin. But not just grief that you found out that I was a liar or I was a thief or I dishonored my parents or I took God's name in vain. Oh, I got caught. I'll be a little more crafty next time and hide my sin. Or I won't open my heart wide to you anymore because you're going to tell me I'm a sinner. This is how we, a response that we get often as we share the gospel as ambassadors. Godly grief leads to repentance and salvation. Whereas, where does worldly grief lead? It produces death. 
What is worldly grief? Someone sitting in their car, police officer behind them. Oh, man, I got caught. I'm going to have to pay this, and this is going into the Christmas season. That's going to dip into my Christmas funds. It's purely financial. It's purely, oh. And what's the solution whenever you get some worldly advice after that? Get a radar detector. Wrong. It's not godly advice. What's godly advice? Stop speeding. Oh, really? People drive below the speed limit? Oh, it's a recommended minimum for most people. Yeah. Repent. You broke the law. You got caught. Repent. That's just one example, and there are thousands of examples of sinning against God. A holy God sees everything. And if we live in the fear of him, we want to please him because he sees. And when a godly person causes us godly grief, we can make excuses like the world and just try to not get caught. And there are a lot of worldly people that grieve over their alcoholism and they're abusing their wife or children or whatever else that is not acceptable in our culture. But if their worldly grief doesn't produce repentance, they will not be saved. And if they aren't saved, where is their life headed? Even if they're sorry for their sin, where is their life heading in verse 10? It produces death. There are fruits of repentance. Fruit is something that's visible. How can we tell if someone is repentant? Well, Proverbs, I think it's 28, 13, Whoever confesses, whoever hides his sin won't prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes his sin will have mercy. When you confess your sin to God, you agree with God it was a sin. And when you're attempting to forsake it, you don't put yourself in the same pattern of living to, to do the same sin again. Same temptation, same worldly friends around you, same bad advice, same fear within and this, is the, this isn't growth. This is insanity, that you're like a hamster on a wheel, and you can't ever get out. Comfort and joy comes from grief over sin. We'll read 11 and 12. For see what earnestness, this is a quickness, that godly grief has produced in you. Paul is so encouraged when he writes difficult things to the Corinthians they are not making excuses. They're not trying to get around it. They're not trying to hide it when Paul sends Titus to them. They are open. They are repentant. And they are quick to have this godly grief that leads to repentance. Look at what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. What punishment? It sounds like here they're punishing themselves. Like James 4 says, they are afflicted and mourning and weeping over their sin. And their laughters turn to, to uh, sadness and their joy into weeping, mourning over their sin. That's what true humility is like. And how quick and eager the Corinthians are to get rid of their sin. If you and I are ministering to someone who is in sin and they are grieving over their sin, 
and they respond like the Corinthians did, that causes you great comfort and joy. At uh, continuing verse uh, 11, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So while Paul says we are innocent, that you should trust us and open your, open your hearts to us, now when they're confronted with the truth of 1 Corinthians, with this hard letter that Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians 2, and uh, Titus uh, tells him the response to those letters, this is how they responded, and at every point they've proved themselves innocent. Wow, isn't Paul comforted and joyful with how the Corinthians responded? Verse 12, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness, how quick you are going to respond for us, might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Here is God giving Paul truth for the Corinthians and for us. And Paul writes and is looking for a response. And the response he's looking for is, how quickly are the Corinthians going to turn from their sin? And that's what he says. It wasn't really about who was sinned against, who did the sinning. It was how you responded as a church. Your earnestness for us, your leaders, might be revealed to you. You would see that we're giving you God's truth and that you're agreeing quickly with us and God's truth. And it's even in the sight of God. And their fear of God, their obedience of God, as a once almost useless church, so divisive, so petty, is now being used by God as ambassadors, as God wants them to be used. Why? Because they are quickly, this grief is in a worldly grief. It's a godly grief that's leading to the repentance, and it's a quick, it's an instant reaction now, and not, eh, I'll, I'll wait and see. You show me the verses that I've done wrong. That's, that, that is immature response to when a godly person confronts you uh, in your sin. Fourth, and finally, it comes from God unifying believers. We saw a little bit of the unity and the call to unity at the beginning in verse 2. We see the unity that Titus brought and how Paul and, and the Corinthians were knit together even though they were apart and, Paul, and Titus was a um, the carrier of the, that news. Verse 13, Therefore, we are comforted. Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. So Titus comes to Paul, and Titus being there, and Titus' news is encouraging to Paul. But look at Titus's face when he talks about the Corinthians, and he is so joyful in, in re relaying what, what the Corinthians, how they have quickly turned from their sin and they are innocent in the matters that Paul has written to them because they have confessed and forsaken it. We rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Titus comes with joy, and Titus is so encouraged as a minister of the gospel um, that he has been refreshed by the Corinthians. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. So Paul says, those Corinthian church, that has so much potential. 
And those people have turned to God from idols, and they are just wanting to grow. And but they got some issues. I'm going to give you a letter for their issues, for that one issue. And we'll see how they respond. They responded so well that Titus is excited when he comes and talks to Paul. And Paul's boasting about them to Titus. And he says, whatever boast I made uh, to him about you, I was not put to shame. I was right. My analysis of you uh, was right. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Titus saw it was true. Titus confirmed back to us, yes, these people are growing. It's exciting. It's an exciting church. Verse 15, and his affection for you is even greater. So Titus was probably leery about going. He maybe just didn't know them. But now as he comes back, he has uh, an affection for them. And the affection that Paul says about opening your hearts toward us is a lot of mutual ministry going on here. Uh, in the end of chapter 7, verse 15, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. You were afraid to get, they were afraid that, that Titus was going to give them this letter. It was going to be really hard, and it was, but they responded well, and as they responded, Titus is encouraged, uh, Paul's encouraged, the Corinthians are encouraged, and because they received him with fear and trembling. Verse 16, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Would you want to hear from the Apostle Paul, Grace Bible Church, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. To do what? To respond like this when you're confronted with your sin, individually, and corporately. That when you hear that God wants to use you as an ambassador for him, you say, okay, I don't know what that means. I'll learn, though. You tell me what I need to learn, and I'll learn it. I'll do it. I'll try it. Not, I'm going to come here and sit in my pew. I'll do what I want to in ministry, and no one's going to get me out of my comfortable space. That is not a healthy church. That's a selfish church. And if you have that mindset, and I don't know if you do, I don't know your heart, but if you have that mindset, you need to grieve over your sin. Because church isn't about you being comfortable. Church is about preparing you for warfare. Because we're ambassadors for Christ on a very hostile territory. And it's becoming more and more obvious that the world around us does not want our message. They don't want our Jesus. They want us to change the message, water it down, conform to their image instead of us being conformed to the image of Christ. And that is what we're called to do, church. And we will give spiritual leaders here a lot of grief if we won't respond like the Corinthians. Children, Teenagers, you'll give your parents, your godly parents, a lot of grief if you won't respond like the Corinthians. Assume that you're wrong. Assume that they're right. That takes humility. But God will comfort the downcast because you know that about God. And he uses people, Christians, to comfort other people and confront them. And when you, re you and I respond like the Corinthians do, 
all of us are unified around one mission, the mission of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which goes back to the Great Commission, which is what the ambassador for Christ does. He makes disciples of all nations. So we apply this today, and I'll pray, and then we'll sing by asking if there's any ungodliness in our methods, because if there is, then people shouldn't want to follow us, as Paul said in the first uh, part of our section. Second, by provoking other believers to grieve and repent. When there's clear sin in their lives, there's clear unholiness in their choices. Provoke other believers to grieve and repent. And then third, by rejoicing with repentant believers who humble themselves to follow godly leaders. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your ministry to us through your word. Thank you for the joy that we can have in comfort and ministry as we work together with other believers, as we work together with parents, as we work together with um, friends to reach their community for you and their friends with the gospel. As we come alongside and comfort those who are grieving over, uh, they're overwhelmed with fear and doubt, and they think that you're not loving at times or that you're up to no good. I pray that you would help us to correct theology, correct what people think about you, help them to see your glory again and submit to that and grieve over their sin. I pray for those here today who their hearts are not open to anyone here. They want to hide their sin. They just want to be comfortable. They just want to feel good. Um, and I pray that they would grieve over their sin. I pray privately that we would grieve over our sin this week and that you would give us someone that um, we can minister to, that we can help them to grieve over their sin and we'll grieve with them over their sin. And finally today, I pray for us to rejoice with those who have grieved over their sin and have repented and help us to encourage them and help them to have comfort and joy and I pray that the leaders in our lives would look at our lives and be able to say that they rejoice because they have complete confidence in us, because we have confidence in our Savior. In whose name we pray.